Hey guys, it's Jill. Jen and I wanted to give you a heads up about the content on today's episode. It may be triggering for more sensitive audiences. Refer to the show notes for more specifics. And take care while you listen. On this episode of Common Mystics, we relate the tale of a mid-century crime spree reportedly fueled by revenge. But what the spirits are telling us is far more sinister. I'm Jennifer James. I'm Jill Stanley. We're psychics. We're sisters. We are common mystics. We find extraordinary stories in ordinary places. And today's story comes to you from Van Wert, Ohio. Jen, this is the last story from our Savannah road trip. Yeah, it is. Well done. Well done. (laughs) This is a heavy story. This is a very heavy story. So please check out our trigger warnings on our show notes because this one is, this one's tough, but we're going to do our best to make it entertaining and give voice to the voiceless and be respectful to the people this story is ultimately about. So Jennifer. Yes, Jill. Please remind our listeners of our intention as we're returning to the Midwest from Savannah. Our intention was, as it always is, to find a verifiable story previously unknown to us that allows us to give voice to the voiceless. That's right. And on our way back to Illinois, we were getting some pretty strong hits and we decided to stop in the city of Van Wert, Ohio. And you right away, we went into an antique shop. What were you feeling? I was feeling an overwhelming sense of World War II. World Mm. War II images kept coming into my mind. What about you? I was getting the impression of being under fire, like definitely like someone was firing at me, but I didn't, it didn't feel like in a war capacity, but I was like, well, that checks out because she's feeling war. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I was also feeling the courthouse and justice, like someone involved in legal proceedings. We left the antique store and as we were driving out of town, you were like hyper focused on the courthouse. Yeah, for real. I was feeling the like I was feeling the church and it felt like mm. I was newly brought to the church. I felt like a religious convert, if that makes sense. Interesting. And you, again, were very mid-century. You kept bringing up grandma and grandpa connections, yes. which um, is really cute, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> They'll come back. <laughs> we'll explain why that's adorable. But you were feeling connections to grandma and grandpa. I was feeling a community. It was a community vibe. Like everyone was feeling the same thing. And mm. in this case, it was a feeling of being mournful, but also like hypersensitive, like like they, they're nervous, but they're also really, really sad. It just felt like tragic. Mm, like a tragic community feeling. Mm-hmm. They felt like they were, uh, you know how like um, cops say be on the lookout? Yeah. That's how it felt. Oh, like everyone okay, it, was a it. part of like a neighborhood watch. You know what yes. I mean? Like everyone's like, oh man, they're looking out for something. Wow. Well, that would totally make sense. So this, these were all the impressions we were picking up in Van Wert. Can you tell me a little bit about Van Wert? Yeah, absolutely. Van Wert is a city in and the county seat of Van Wert County, Ohio. It's about 77 miles west of Toledo and 34 miles east of Fort Wayne, Indiana. And Van Wert is located in the northwest section of the state. Mm-hmm. It was also, interestingly, the home to the first county 
library in the entire United States. That's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. So it's known for that. Um, in 2010, the census noted a population of a little over 10,000. Mm-hmm. And fun fact that Van Wert is known for its peonies. You know the flower? Yes, I love the flower. Mm-hmm. It's a center of peony cultivation. And actually, Van Wert has hosted the annual Van Wert Peony Festival on and off since 1902. How adorable is that? That is super cute. I love that. The town itself is super cute. The old homes. It seems like it, they're well kept up, almost like Victorian mansions kind of vibe, right? Yeah, like they honor their history. Super cute, super well kept. It is really a little jewel. It really is. Can you tell me about our research and how this is relevant? Well, we started with our hits and we did a little research about what was happening near Van Wert in and around Van Wert, Ohio, around 1950, right? That's correct. You would actually find a very significant event that occurred in 1948. Now, you guys, listen, we were not happy about this story. Jennifer and I kicked it around back and forth and we're like, we got to do what we got to do. But please, it's just take care while you listen, because it is rough. So according to SenecaCountyOhio.org, in July 1948, two former prisoners of Mansfield Reformatory, which is a prison... It is the prison featured in um, Shawshank Redemption. Oh, is that right? Yeah, isn't that cool? Featured in meaning? The actual production, yeah. Okay. And Mansfield Reformatory is located in Mansfield, Ohio, about 65 miles northeast of Columbus, Ohio. And the two former prisoners were Robert Merle Daniels, age 24, from Columbus, Ohio, and John Coulter West, 22, from Parkersburg, West Virginia. And they would team up and commit one of the more horrendous crime sprees in Ohio state history, resulting Mm -hmm. in the deaths of six innocent lives. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, Jill, their journey would take them to Van Wert, Ohio. So, how did these two meet? <laughs> how did these two? How, how did they, they get, get together? together? Tell me, tell me everything. Well, according to GhostWalks.com, Daniels and West were cellmates, so they were kind of roommates at the prison at Mansfield, mm-hmm. and they developed a quick friendship. So they would get along right away. And apparently, um, Daniels looked out for West like he was like his big brother figure. Well, I was going to ask you, since you researched uh, this story, could you tell me a little bit about like Robert Daniels? I know that he was convicted of unarmed robbery in the 40s, and that's why he was at Mansfield. But what was his home life like? What was he like? His parents were dysfunctional AF. There wasn't a lot of opportunities for him to make a decent a living. Mm. So he turned to a life of crime. He wasn't that good at it because he got arrested right away and was sent to prison for 25 years. But he knew how to play the system. He was intelligent. Mm. He had reportedly an above average IQ. And so he knew how to impress the parole board. So he had a great work ethic. He was friendly. He stayed out of trouble and he kept his head down. And because of that, 
ironically enough, he was released in only four years for good behavior. Interesting. You also have here that he was reportedly a psychopath or had a psychopathic personality. You know, it seems like those two things would be in conflict with one another, but it's not. Because I'll tell you, most notable sociopaths or psychopaths, and I use the words interchangeably, they're really intelligent and they know how to blend in to a community in a very specific way to get the results they're looking for. So yes, a lot of people felt chilled in his presence. Mm. It felt like he was projecting more than he was actually experiencing. And that left people in hindsight with like, wow, this guy must have been a sociopath. So tell me just a little bit, since we're talking about Daniels being a, a psychopath or a sociopath, and again, we're using those terms interchangeably, what are some personality traits and behaviors associated with that particular diagnosis? Ugh, lack of emotion and sensitivity and empathy. There's an impulsiveness. There's superficial mm. charm and insensitivity to them. They get turned up to 11 awful quickly because they lack the ability to entertain themselves, really. So they're always looking for a way to keep themselves engaged. And a lot of times that is pulling a wool over someone's eyes, playing tricks on somebody in the most benign cases. But ultimately, Someone who is really far on that spectrum may live a life of crime and do more horrendous things to keep their attention and to experience excitement. Okay, so it makes sense that someone with this personality type would absolutely be involved in crime and if not like horrendous crimes. Very good. Okay, I, I have a good picture of Daniels in my head. Let's talk about uh, his cellmate who was two years younger, John Coulter West. Um, he was 22 from Parkersburg, West Virginia. Um, what do we know about John West? So his early life was like rather tragic. He was what it seems to be in, living in dire circumstances with his mother. Yeah, in West Virginia, his dad had left. The mom was abusive and worked a lot. She would make breakfast in the morning and run out. And then if the house was an immaculate when she would come back, she would beat him or sometimes leave him outside in the cold. And because he... Um, had a below average oh. IQ of what was tested at a 60, he would just react to what his mother was doing. So when I say she left him out in the cold, he was trying to obey and he would stay there until she opened the door, right? Wow. So it wasn't like he was like, let me in, I'm cold. He would just sit there in the cold until she decided to let him back in. So if he had an IQ of 60, just to give people some, some context, according to Healthline.com, most people in the population, about 68%, have an IQ between 85 and 115. That would be the average range. And only a very small fraction of people have an IQ below 70 or a very high IQ above 130. And so for him, having an IQ of 60 would make him stand out, I should say, as someone with a cognitive disability. I know that you work in the educational fields, like that's your day job. Is 
the type of testing, like IQ testing, how would you use those results of someone um, getting their IQ test done? And what would those tests say about that person as far as how they would interact with others? First of all, you you can't jump to conclusions based on one test score. So I want to just make that clear. But if I knew that someone had an IQ of 60, I would expect that person to be limited in their problem-solving abilities, limited in their abilities to communicate effectively, to understand more complicated concepts and ideas. Um, Someone with a 60 IQ would probably be very impressionable, easy to fool, and often, um, often, but not always, impulsive and not understanding consequences. Mm. Not, not fully understanding consequences and the nuance of consequences. So again, we don't have a complete psychological profile of West, but generally speaking, if someone has a, a an IQ of 60, I would expect them to be limited. Okay. So from my understanding, Daniels was paroled first and then, and he, and West was still in prison and, and sad because his friend, his protector had left and he was paroled. And so so when Daniels told West, you know, I'm leaving, I'm getting paroled, be happy for me, West was distraught. And so Daniel says, look, when you have the opportunity to get out, you contact me and we'll get together again. Ah. And he gave West instructions on how he got out. Just be good, be a hard worker, keep your nose clean, and that's how you make it out of here. And that's exactly what West did. So a couple months later, he too was released. Interesting. Tell me, why was West in prison to begin with? He was arrested for stealing tires. He was stealing tires and selling them to make money. There are some conflicting stories that it was like... larceny is what it says here. Right. And but it's it was either he was selling the tires from a car or was getting the entire car and mm-hmm. selling the tires. Either way, he was supposed to be in prison a lot longer than he served. So he served just one year and and mm-hmm. like Daniels was released for good behavior. Correct. Thank you for setting that up. I feel like I know these people a little bit better and uh, can understand what they're about to do. Tell me about it. So according to SenecaCountyOhio.org, the night that West was paroled, he called Daniels, just like you said, Daniels told him to. Mm -hmm. He was on his way back to West Virginia, where he lived. Right. He really didn't have anything for him in West Virginia, right? Mm-hmm. So it, mm-hmm. I was, I from the research that I did intuitively, I felt like he was really reaching out and being like, hey, can I mm-hmm. spend time with you? Because right. he didn't want to go home. He really didn't have anything there. And what did Daniels's family think about their son's involvement or friendship with West? You know, it's so bizarre because... Daniels, who was reportedly a sociopath, their family was like, oh, stay away from him. He's isn't that interesting. He's not right. Yeah. His dad said, keep away from that boy. (laughs) So they did not want him to spend time with West at all. No, ma'am. No, no, no. Interesting. Because in my mind, it would have been Daniels who would kind of be controlling West. Mm-hmm. Interesting. But what did what did Daniel say when his dad was like, stay away from that boy, (laughs) pop? He's the smartest man I ever saw. Which is now that again is very ironic. Very ironic because yeah, he he couldn't have been. Well, let's talk more about that in the in the detours because I have some theories about about that relationship. Okay, I'm marking it detours. Okay. okay. 
What did Mrs. Daniels, Robert's mom? Oh my gosh, do? Mrs. Daniels. The day that West came to Daniel's house, Mrs. Daniels stood on the front steps crying, and she begged her son not to go with him. That's so bizarre. But they did it. He did anyway. Daniels just made his way past her and met up with West on June twentieth, nineteen forty-eight. And the rest is history. Mm. In just a few days, Jill, the pair would be deemed the mad dog killers and would ignite the largest manhunt to date in Ohio state history. Yikes. So, Jen, can you tell me about the crime spree and how it began? Sure. So Daniels and West meet up in late June 1948. And their crime spree began in Columbus, Ohio. In early July, they stole a two-tone Pontiac from a parking lot. They got a gun and they started drinking. Okay. I I just want to say I'm not blaming the alcohol, but I know that didn't help. Okay. Right. So <laughs> far, saying. it sounds like, you know, a hillbilly good time. <laughs> wow. Let's steal a car, get a gun <laughs> and start drinking. Yes. But how do they have money for all these good times? Well, they robbed a gas station. And by the way, they beat the attendant at the gas station, too. In the account of them beating the 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 attendant at the gas station, it was like D- Daniels was doing it to be like, I'm so strong to impress West. And West was getting like was cheering him on like a, a like a, a cheerleader. Oh, my gosh. That's so sick. Then I hope you don't mind, but I looked a little bit more into what they did next. Tell me. Then they hit up a couple of taverns. The first they went to Joe's Grill in Columbus, Ohio on July 9th, 1948. Sounds good. I would go to Joe's Grill. They walked into Joe's Joe's Grill Grill and they were kind of brandishing their guns and the customers saw their guns and they started escaping through the back door. Mm -hmm. West was firing his forty-five. He was just shooting up the place, but he he didn't hit anybody at Joe's Grill. Um, Thank God. Yeah. So people fled and they cleaned out the safe in the cash register. And then they went to the next place. The next place was Earl Ambrose's Tavern. This time they entered through the back door and they they announced that they were there to rob the place. So imagine Mm. they go in the back door and they yell, this is a robbery. That sucks. You're just okay. Let's just pretend like you just got off of work and you're just going for a beer. Mm -hmm. And then these two come in. I would be so pissed. No kidding. So Earl Ambrose, the owner, attempted to flee. So he he ran out. But before he could, he was shot in the back three times and killed instantly on the scene. Mm, That totally sucks. A woman was also shot in the abdomen, but she would end up surviving. In all, they would get away with $8,000 from their hits. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. Luckily, there was a bystander who noticed the two-tone Pontiac that they were driving, took down the license plate number, and gave it to the police. Nice. Mm-hmm. So now the city of Columbus, they are on high alert. They're like, we got some robbers going on, just shooting up the and place, murder. acting a fool. And murder. And they murder. Killed Ambrose. And Ambrose. Mm-hmm. Poor Ambrose. I know. And he was just fleeing. I know. That's what sucks. It's like you didn't have to they kill him. You could have just him. took the money. Okay. So now Columbus is all up in arms. What do the boys do? Well, they leave. Because things are hot in Columbus, so they make their way to the Detroit area. It's true. They spend a lot of their time 
picking up girls, drinking, and doing small robberies to support their crime spree. They traveled a lot. They went to Indianapolis, Indiana, St. Louis, Missouri, and Nashville, Tennessee. But then they returned to the Columbus, Ohio area. Why in the actual F would they go back to like the nucleus of their crime spree? Okay, so this is super interesting. They decided on a plan whereby they would get revenge on the guards who mistreated them at Mansfield in their Mansfield, Ohio prison. Okay, just like randomly, they're like, we're drinking one night with girls and they're like, you know what we should do? We should go back to Ohio, to Columbus and get that guards that be hurting us. (laughs) Is that what happened? As far as I know, yes. And they plan to return to Mansfield (laughs) and kill several of the former guards, but they especially had it in for Willis Harris. Apparently, they made easy time of prison talking to each other about how they wanted to hurt Harris. Harris. Poor Harris. What did Harris do? Uh, Apparently, he was mean to them. But I don't... I I mean, really? Was he that mean to them? I mean, are you supposed to be nice to the prisoners? I don't know. I mean... Okay. I don't know. I don't know what Harris did, but they definitely had... They had it in for Willis Harris. Yes, for sure. Anyway, they wanted to kill Willis Harris, so they go back to the Columbus area and... Um, Question. They, they need... Yeah. Excuse me. Um, so they're just like, we're going to kill that Harris and we're going to go back to Ohio and we're going to yep. shoot him up. How did they mm-hmm. find him? How yeah, did they because know? they couldn't just get online. There was no Facebook, Yeah, right? this is 48. Apparently, they located the warden of Mansfield Prison. Okay, and the idea was they'll go and locate the warden and they'll get Harris's location, his address from the warden because the warden must know where the guard lives. Right. They didn't think of like the HR department of the prison. They're like, just go to the warden. Apparently not. They head to John E. Nebel's house. Nebel was the warden of the Mansfield prison. Jesus. And they arrive at his house late in the evening on July 20th, 1948. And Daniels knocks on the door of the Nebel home. And he's able to convince John Nebel that he's having car trouble and he needs to use the phone. Man. God, I'm glad those days are over. You know, I was just thinking that. I would I would just... I, I, people want to be polite and be like, sure, use my phone. I, yeah. would, like, I would be like, well, give me the number. I'll, I will call the people. I will leave a message. Do not invite people in your home and car trouble is always a story they use yeah i know well nebel you think that he might recognize daniels but he didn't he didn't recognize him at all and he opened up his home to him and you would think in his line of work that he would be a little bit more have a little bit more discretion you know like oh there are there are bad especially because it's late at night you don't know this guy oh man yeah so once inside Daniels took out his gun. And then that's when West barged in the front door. It just seems like chaos. They ransacked the home and they they were smoking cigarettes and burning holes in the furniture there. Just to be dicks. Just to flex that they had John under control. Because he, of course, was like, what is happening? But John wasn't the only one home. Oh, no. He was married and his wife, Nolanda, was in bed as was their 21-year-old daughter, Phyllis. Daniels and West wake up Nolanda and Phyllis. They wake them up. 
Because as of this point, they are sleeping, not doing anything in their rooms, just minding their own business, didn't need to be involved in this at all. That's right. And they they wake them up and they involve them in this scene. Now, remember, (sighs) they wanted Harris's address so that they could kill him. However, the two of them, Daniels and West, decide to deal with the Nebel family now. So now they, they they come up with a new plan. They have to deal with this family. Well, this is a the thing. They thought, okay, so we have Harris's number. We can't just like leave here and go kill Harris because of course John Nebel is going to tell, like call gonna the police tell the and authorities, be like, right, exactly. and tip Harris that, hey, these guys are coming to get you. So we need to keep them out of our way in time enough to kill Harris. So they devise a plan to take the family, the entire Nebel family, John, his wife, and his daughter, from their home across town to a cornfield, and then Mm. tie them up and gag them and leave them there. That's the plan. And then this would keep the family from notifying the police of their plans long enough for them to get away. Okay, so new plan, thinking on their feet. But, um, dicks. Before leading (laughs) them to the car... Daniel's Jennifer assaults. in real time is reading this outline and is just appalled by what's happening. Okay, sorry. Before leading the family to the car, Daniels assaults 21-year-old Phyllis at gunpoint. And then they force the entire family into the car. And then, again, just to flex their muscles that they have control over these people, they have them strip naked and toss their clothes out the window. That is so degrading. That is just so, so, so degrading and unnecessary. Unnecessary to torture them this way. I know. Anyway. That's just next level, man. They arrive at the cornfield as planned around 1.30 a.m. And they escort the family into the secluded field. And then they realize that they forgot the rope. They forgot the rope, Jill. The plan was to tie him up and gag him, but they wow. forgot the rope. Wow. So they decide to shoot them all instead. Oh. And that's what they do. They killed John, his wife, Nolanda, and 21-year-old Phyllis and left their bodies in the cornfield. Oh, my God. The next morning, when John Nebel, the warden, didn't arrive for work... The prison notified the police and there was a welfare check at the house. Based on the condition of the home, it was obvious that there was foul play involved in the disappearance of the family. And it was later that day that a troop of boys hiking from a nearby church camp would walk past the cornfield and find the Nebels there. That's just so terrible. Now, there was a neighbor who tipped off the police about a two-tone Pontiac sedan that was seen at the home of the Nebels the night before. And so authorities were able to put together the fact that that two-tone sedan was also seen at the Columbus robberies. And so the crimes were linked. Mm. So they got busy. They started thinking, like, who could this be? Mm -hmm. What's going on? What'd they find? Well, a day later, the Akron Beacon Journal prints, quote, authorities believe revenge to be the motive for the Nebel killings. So a day later, and the press is already reporting on what the motive is. Wow. Mm -hmm. They left no prints behind, but investigators had a list of parolees from Mansfield Prison 
that had been released over the past eight, eight months. And based on the descriptions from the witnesses, they narrowed it down to John West at the top of the suspect list. And then they surmised that Robert Daniels would be with him because they were cellmates. Mm-mm-mm. They knew who they were pretty quickly on. Yeah. Kudos to the police Detective department. Work. Yeah, that was pretty quick, especially eight months of looking at prisoners released. And they just went. Yeah, right. That was pretty quick. The paper outlined that the pair were wanted in connection thus far with the murders of Earl Ambrosia, the tavern owner that was shot three times in the back, and mm. the Nebel family, John, Nolanda, and their daughter, Phyllis. Jeez. Now, after murdering the Nebel family, Daniels and West. My whole thing is, if they were smart, they would be looking at the papers. They would have known that like, the police pretty quickly were on to them. You'd think. Yeah. They decided to abandon their plan to kill Willis Harris. <laughs> what a fucking the, the guard. Not that they should have killed Harris, but it's like you killed an entire family, family. for that information. And now, now you like, have a second now, thought. Yeah. Right. Like, on, like, what are you saying right now? See, again, they're just not thinking things through to completion. And they're still driving this car, this two-tone Pontiac. By the way, if you're going to steal a car, don't steal one that's so, like, unique looking. Specific. Yes. That's what, like, I was thinking, I was telling Chad the other day with vanity plates, like, people have, like, Michigan 1. I'm like, I would never want an easy license plate for anyone to remember. Just so in general. So that you can commit your crimes and not be exactly. easy to find. Exactly. You are going to commit the crimes. Do not be easy to find. Right. So they abandoned the plan to murder Harris, the guard on whom they wanted revenge, because now their motivation was to flee the police investigating the Nebel family murders. You know, and honestly, I don't even know what, at this point where they went from having a good time to trying to wanting to murder Harris. And now that plan's abandoned. Now what? It's like it's so rudderless. There's it's just like a free for all of stupidity and murder. Sorry. So they head to Cleveland, Ohio, to put some distance between themselves and the cornfield where they left the Nebels. And on the next day, they arrive in Akron, Ohio, and they purchase a 30 caliber rifle. Apparently, they were headed to Indiana. How many guns did these people need? Why do they need another gun? I don't know. I don't know. Okay, go on. Apparently, they were headed to Indiana, and they passed through the town of Tiffin. They decided to stop and look for a place to stay the night. They were looking for kind of a and b situation. Like, they weren't looking for a big inn or a big hotel. They were looking I for, understand that. for like, yeah. a, a little house where they, they take boarders for the night. Quaint, cute. Mm -hmm. Breakfast in the morning. Gotcha. There you go. So they stopped at Clarence Patterson's home on Market Street, but the Pattersons didn't have any spare rooms. But Mrs. Patterson called Mrs. Clyde Mittens. Cute. <laughs> Mittens. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Clyde Mittens tourist home on Market Street. And uh, Miss Mitten had some vacancies. So that's where Daniels and West went. And they rented two rooms from Mrs. Mitten, although they only used one of the rooms. Which I don't think is any of our business, really. But why waste the money? I mean, it's not their money. I know, but they committed crimes to get it. That took some effort. Still stupid. Yeah. So they yeah. rented two rooms. They should have just rented one, but they uh, slept until five that afternoon. So they slept late. And then then they they just had a grand old time, Jill. 
They were just well, they enjoying. Do. They were just enjoying the town of Tiffin. They walked. <laughs> what is there to do in Tiffin? <laughs> I've never heard of the place. Please tell me. Well, according to Daniels and West, if you're a murderer looking for a good time, you can uh, have a nice restaurant dinner. And then after supper, they went to Hedges Boyer Park and attended a play. Nice. Yeah. It was called A Gay 90s Review. And it was I want to see that play. (laughs) I really want to see that play. That is a great name for a play. A Gay 90s Review. Yes, uh, which I'm was already drawn in. An I'm out, already drawn in. It was an outdoor theater production, local theater production in a barn, starring the Tiffin Summer Players. Aww. There were over 100 people attending the play. See, that's a big deal. Yeah, Tiffin. it was. And then after the show, after enjoying the show, that's when Daniels and Wes decided, okay, back to business. We need another car. Because they realized that the car that they were driving was very recognizable. They were, you know, it it was... I have thoughts on this, by the way. Can I detour this one as well? Sure. Yeah, I'm going to mark it. So we'll talk more about this on detours for our Patreon. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... Then they decide, all right, we're we're done enjoying the lovely Tifton summer players. Yes, yes. Summer in the park. <laughs> they uh, they stopped at a root beer stand north of Tiffin, uh, presumably looking for another car. I don't like root beer. I don't like root beer either. I don't like root beer, but I will drink but it. If that was like an ice cream stand, I will drink it with ice cream. You in would. It. Oh, yes. I wouldn't. With ice cream, with vanilla ice cream. Yeah. I would just like, hold your root beer, give me the ice cream. I think it's called a black cow if you use chocolate ice cream. That's rude. I think we're going to have to try this because have you ever had a root beer float? Um, See? I'm not doing it. See? I'm not doing it. You know, you say that, but you you know what? I have. I have. And you know what I don't like about it? The carbonation leaves like this nasty ring. It does. I don't like it. It's scum. It's the I don't like it's root yeah, beer scum. I don't want yeah. I don't want root beer okay. scum on my All right. Yeah. Well no. back to the root beer stand. So they drive out of Tiffin and they stop at a root beer stand, presumably looking for another car to steal. And they spotted one that they were interested in. They spotted a Buick that was owned by Jim and Rita Smith. Jim and Rita were newlyweds. They were married just two years prior. And they had stopped at the root beer stand on their way home playing cards with Rita's parents at their house. And so they had their root beer treat and Jim Smith drove the couple's car towards home. And while they did, they didn't realize that Daniels and West were following very close behind them. And after a few miles, the murderers forced Jim's car to the side of the road and pulled their car in front of the Smiths. West ran up to the driver's side window and demanded Jim's wallet. Right away, Jim handed over his wallet to West without a fight. And once West had the wallet in his possession, he shot Jim, killing him instantly. Rita was shocked, of course, and screaming, and she was forced by Daniels into the back seat. And he filed in after her. But Rita was quick, and she shimmied across the back seat to the other door and ran out of the car and escaped. That a girl. Daniels followed after her, and West drove away. West done left Daniels. Mm-hmm, because Daniels was chasing after Rita. That's just bizarre. He didn't catch her, though. And West came back and picked up Daniels, just as Rita was gone from his sight. Now, because they killed Jim, and Rita was loose fleeing 
they still needed another vehicle that the police would not be looking for. Because clearly, if they took Jim and Rita's car, the Buick, the police would know right away what car they're looking for. So again, this sounds like a blunder to me. Mm. At about 11 p.m. that night, they crossed over the Sandusky River and found themselves at a rest stop called the Ironside Inn. And the inn had a large parking area where travelers could pull off and get some rest, literally a rest stop. And in the lot was a truck that hauls cars. You know what I'm talking about, Jill, those big Mm -hmm. trucks, and then you can get several cars on the back. I'm afraid of them. It's always like it looks precarious, like how those cars aren't falling. I know. I don't understand the physics behind that at all. I don't trust it. Anyway, asleep at the wheel was a 24 year old father named Orville Taylor from Niles, Michigan. Well, Daniels woke him up and pulled him from the truck. This poor guy. Mm-hmm. He must have been so startled. He was like, what in the hell? Totally. And he's being pulled from the truck. Totally. And he started to transfer the items from their car into the truck. West took Orville Taylor to the back of the truck. And West said to him, don't worry, I'll take good care of her. And then he shot Orville twice, leaving him dead in the lot. Again, senseless. Now, what's interesting to me here is, again, are they trying to find the most easily identifiable vehicles? <laughs> Honestly, they're going to get a, a car loading truck. Those aren't those aren't versatile. They're not easy to maneuver. They're super Mm-mm. identifiable. It's just mm-hmm. stupid. The pair took the truck back south to Tiffin and headed west, still intending to escape to Indiana. And of all the routes, they're going back to the, where they just did the crimes again. Right, back to Tiffin. Right, exactly. Instead <sighs> of going straight to Indiana, I don't know why they would go south. But anyway, four miles west of Tiffin, they stopped at a restaurant called The Ranch, where they each had a hamburger and just some beer. four miles. It's almost like they're getting off on the chaos that they're creating, Right. They just like four miles away from the town. Right. Things must have been a buzz. People running around saying, hey, did you hear? Right. It's like the killer going back to the crime. (sighs) After their late supper, the two continued to travel west on State Route 224 to a truck stop slash filling station called the Halfway Inn, where they pulled over to sleep for the rest of the night. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, police did find Jim Smith's car. You know, the the newlywed. Yeah. The husband. Of Rita Smith. Mm -hmm. And they also found Orville Taylor's body in the lot of the Ironside Inn. Now, the police had no idea who Orville was or what vehicle the murderers were, the murderers two were now driving. So, because they didn't know what they were driving, the state police, with the help of local law enforcement, set up roadblocks all over the place. And they went from Tiffin north to Michigan and west to Indiana. So it was a large network of roadblocks. It was all hands on deck across Ohio. So with the roadblock plan in effect, when the car hauling truck was stopped on State Route 224 in Ohio, local Sheriff Roy Schaefer and six others from his department approached the truck. Sheriff Schaefer thought that there was something suspicious about it. Now, West was at the wheel driving. And he actually had already been stopped three times, Jill, before this stop. Mm. And he had gotten away. He had gotten through the other three times. So he was pretty feeling pretty cocky and pretty confident he could get through this one, too. 
Well, if you were a, a police officer and you were looking for someone doing these types of crimes, you would assume someone of that, like he may have presented in a way that looked benign as opposed to like a murderer, right? I don't know that to be true. I don't know. Well, he went through three roadblocks right. if, he did, if he looked like... I mean, I would assume that a highly recognizable vehicle like a car hauling truck would not be driven by like that. That is not a getaway vehicle. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, I would not yes. think that that is that's your getaway vehicle. You know what I'm saying? Right. So right. in that regard, it maybe it was smart to steal it. But in any event, he had already gotten through three different roadblocks and this was his fourth. And he was pretty confident that he would get out of this one, too. Now, Daniels wasn't in the cab of the truck. He was in a Studebaker at the top of the trailer. Mm. And the sheriff asked West, he was questioning him, and he said, you know, where are you from? And West replied that he was from Tiffin. And then he asked if he was alone. And West said, yes, yes, he was. But something about his reply made the sheriff question him again. And instinctually, he knew that he was lying. And so he asked Sergeant Leonard Kahn to cover him as he took a look about the truck. And he made his way up towards the Studebaker that was sitting at the top of the hauler. And he noticed that there was a slit cut in the canvas covering the car. So it must have been a convertible. Mm. And Schaefer could see Daniels there with several guns. And that's when he yelled. And Daniels yelled, you have me. Don't kill me. I'll do anything you want. What a coward. After all that killing. Right. But it was at that moment that West jumped out of the cab of the truck and he crouched behind the open door and began shooting at Sergeant Leonard Kahn. Mm. The officers returned fire. A bullet struck Kahn a glancing blow in the chest. And as Kahn went down, he sprayed the cab of the truck with his machine gun, hitting West in the forehead. Jesus. West was taken to the hospital where he died around 11 a.m. Daniels was taken to the local jail. Can you imagine? Like, don't kill me, don't kill me. Like, fuck you. How many people did you just kill for no reason? Yeah. Not that he not that he should be killed. It's just the response of such a coward. That's my point. Like, he's acting big and bad, like beating up the attendant to a bloody pulp just to be like, yeah, going back to Tiffin to see all like the chaos he caused. And then when he gets shooting the tavern owner in the yeah, back, it's just like, really? And then as soon as the cop made eyes on you, you're like, no, 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 not me. Right. Hands up. Robert Daniels was wanted to stand trial in three different Ohio counties. However, authorities decided to send him to Richland County, where he would stand trial for the Nebel family murders, which makes sense. It makes sense. But then the other crimes, he wouldn't have been tried for. Right. So that's kind of shitty. It's kind of shitty, whatever. but I could see how they would want to get the most bang for their buck. And here you have the Nebel family murders are three crimes in one. And so if you're going to prosecute, you. let's choose the one where that he's going to get the greatest sentence for. So I get it. Daniels gave an interview, Jill, that was recorded. This is so bad. And you can find it on YouTube, right? So bad. It's chilling. Or he's being interviewed by the sheriff. Yeah. We can talk about this in the detours, too. But what's chilling about it isn't necessarily what he says, but how he says it. It's his tone, right? Yes. It's his tone. Yes. It's that cocky. 
he's just such a son of a bitch. It's just disgusting. It is. It really is. And he doesn't look like a murderer. Do you know what I mean? Which is even more yeah. just by the appearance. He's well dressed. His hair slicked back. He winks at the camera. I know. It's hard. It's hard. It's really hard. Right. It's really, really hard. In that interview, Daniel says that he would die for his crimes. And he does. He was right. <laughs> he would end up dying he for does. his crimes. On January 3rd of 1949, at 7.30 p.m., witnesses gathered to see the execution of Robert Merle Daniels. Bye, Felicia. Having recently converted to Catholicism, he was with a priest, and he prayed up to the very end. Daniels was strapped into an electric chair, and after eight long minutes at 8.09 p.m., he was pronounced dead. (sighs) There is some good news, Jill. There is some good news. I don't, how? Well, remember Rita Smith? Yeah. Rita got away and she was given a reward for information that led to the arrest of Weston Daniels. And she didn't keep that reward, but instead she donated it to the family of Orville Taylor. Aw, because he had a young son and a wife at home. Yeah, and again, that was sweet, Rita. Orville Taylor was the man who was driving the car loading truck and was murdered in that lot. Now, there is a historical marker memorializing the location of the roadblock where Daniels was apprehended and, and West was killed by the police. We missed it. Yeah, we didn't see that that marker. And actually, there was a movie, there was a book written about the Mansfield killings. And there was a movie set to be completed about the crime, about the crime spree. A website says that it's due out in 2018. But as far as we can tell, it was never it hasn't been released. It hasn't been released, right? The movie was based on on the book, The Mansfield Killings, and it was about the Nebel family murders. Right. It's dedicated to the Nebel family murders, and it's a fictionalized account of the murders. So it's based on the reality, but, you know, the author kind of filled in, like, the dialogue. Yeah. Mm. So why are we talking about this? Why do you think this is our story? I should ask you the same thing. Let me ask you, because you really thought about this. You can ask me. So, Jill, why? You can ask me anything. (laughs) So knowing that there's already a historical marker, knowing that there's a book written about the murders and the crime spree, why do you think we're talking about this? Okay, I'm so glad you asked me this. Um, Because it seems like the victims already have a voice. People already know about this crime spree. Really? It does, doesn't it? Well, first of all, the historical marker does not honor the victims, but honors the officers that stopped West and realized something was Okay, you know what? I'm I'm for that. I'm for that, too. But can we also acknowledge that these people killed? I know that's not the whole story, but good on them. Good on them. Because other cops let them through. Again, the movie that's based on a fictionalized version of just the Nebel killings, like a whole book was written about it. It was never released. Right. Okay. The victims most notable and publicized were the Nebels because of the warden and his family. Also, most accounts don't name the other victims. They only name the Nebels. 
So if you read about this this killing spree, you won't hear the name of Jim Smith. You won't hear the name of Earl Ambrose or Oval Taylor. You only know about John, Nola, and Phyllis. Because John was the warden and Nolanda and Phyllis were the warden's wife and daughter. Right. And most upsetting, and this is huge to me, the reason why they say that this happened. So they publicized the Nebel killing. You don't hear about the other atrocities that these two committed. They just focus on the Nebels and say this was a revenge killings. And that's the narrative that the local and the the press printed at the time. Revenge? But... They wanted revenge over Willis Harris, the guard who mistreated them. They didn't go to the Nebels because of revenge. They went to the Nebels to get an address. That's right. And what about the other people that they killed? Had absolutely nothing to do with revenge at all. Totally random. Wow. What? Just out of curiosity, why do you think that is? Why do you think they're like, oh, this is revenge? My thought is, if you tell the public that this crime spree was about revenge, it means that these two men were targeting guards, the warden in a prison. So if you are not a guard or a warden, you're safe. Right. But if they say that these two men are randomly killing people out for root beer um, or driving a truck, then that's random and senseless and it could happen to anybody. No, and not only that, these two men were in the community, going to plays, eating at a diner, going, sleeping at a different bread and breakfast and going to one looking for vacancies. Could have been like anybody. They were of, exactly. It's like a tornado effect. You don't know why they choose who they chose. We don't know why they didn't kill anyone at the, at the theater that night. They could have. Or the bread and breakfast. Right. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. That's so give me your hint. Much more sinister. I'll go through all of mine. Um, World War Two. Jennifer. What? All these characters in this story, from Jim Smith to Earl Ambrose to the sheriff to West and Daniels themselves have been drafted into World War Two. They II. all fought in World War Two. All II. of them. All they of were them. all vets. Wow. 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 Courthouse. Daniels was taken to that no, courthouse. No, he wasn't. Yes. The courthouse where yes. I was drawn to in Van Wert. Yes. He was at the Van Wert yes. courthouse. Yes. Holy crap. The roadblock was right outside of Van Wert. So when local officials had taken him, they took him to the courthouse and they took him to jail. <gasps> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. You good? You good? That whole mid-century you- feeling. Well, that's that's yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the, the time and, and place that I was getting. Tell me about your. This hits. is the cutest thing. No, oh, no, no. Wanted- Tell me about Grandma and Grandpa because this is the cutest thing on earth. Grandma and Grandpa always grew peonies around their house, and so even today, I associate the flower with Grandma. And so to find out that Van Wert is a center of peony, uh, uh, the peony festival and peony cultivation, I think I was picking up on that. I love it. And it's a breadcrumb to be like, this is where you're supposed right, to be. Right, 100%. Your story's That's here. That's true. All right, you? Jeez, under fire. Mm. I mean, hello, right. they were under fire. Like, the community was under fire. They were under mm-hmm. fire. Everyone's under fire. Religious convert <gasps> at the end minute. of his life. Daniel, yeah, he decided to repent. What a dick. 
Um, community mourning and at risk. Need I say more? Be on the lookout. Oh my gosh! Right, like you said, the the whole community of Columbus, Ohio, was on the lookout for this for these murderers. The whole state. This was supposed to be the largest manhunt in the state's history at the time. It even um, made the John Dillinger manhunt like pale in comparison. Wow. I mean, if you consider how many authorities were involved in that large scale roadblock, that's mind boggling. It's ridiculous. And tell me the roadblock. The roadblock was right outside of Van Wert. I just told you that. Sorry, I jumped. You did. That was supposed to be a major like reveal. I know, but that's the reveal at the courthouse. I revealed it at the courthouse part. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Jennifer. What? In conclusion. This story is more terrifying than revenge. A hundred percent. These were not revenge murders. These were senseless Mm. acts of violence. With unsophisticated murderers just running amok to entertain themselves is what we have here. And that's why it's so scary. And the press and the cops, I guess they wanted to paint it that way to present a narrative that made people feel safe when in fact no one was safe from these idiots. No one was safe. And this was indiscriminate. Yeah. It was just like, okay, we're on now. We're going to start killing now. Let's start killing. Unbelievable. It was like they started playing a game. I'm glad that we did this story, even though it was a hard one. I'm glad that we set the story straight. I'm glad that we said the names, the murdered. Can we say them again? Please, you have them there. Yep. In order, Earl Ambrose, John Nebel, Nolanda Nebel, Phyllis Nebel, Jim Smith, and Overall Taylor. So this episode is dedicated to you folks, and I'm so sorry. So um, meet us at Detours because we want to get into the nitty gritty of what we think about these two morons Mm -hmm. and their killing spree. Also... Please check us out on our website, commonmystics.net. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Common Mystics Pod, and tune in and listen wherever you're listening to your favorite podcast. But hey, if you happen to be listening on Apple, please leave us a positive review so other people can find us. Please, please, please. It really helps. Also, tell your neighbors, tell your friends about us. We're growing and we're so excited and we get so super soaked when we see our numbers go up. Thank you guys so much. Happy holidays. Thank you and good night. Good night. Good night.